Last week, we talked about what it means to utter those four words, I am a Christian. What it meant to those early followers of Christ that we read about in Scripture and what it means to followers of Christ today. And we talked about how those four words, when spoken with honesty and conviction, define every other aspect of our lives. In fact, we sometimes spend a lot of time and energy and resources in the church trying to be more like the culture around us in the name of being relevant, which is called contextualization, when in truth Jesus was far more interested in people than he was in presentation. Okay, And the people who identified themselves as Christians were far more concerned about being like him than they were about being like the culture around them. Uh, the gospel message is already relevant to the culture around us, and it always will be, no matter how we try to dress it up. Because beneath all of the latest trends and the methods for church ministry is an unalterable message of truth and hope that transcends culture. It transcends our preferences and styles of music and the way we dress and aesthetics of all kinds. And so it's not that we're opposed to contextualizing the gospel, making the, the presentation of it culturally relevant. However, I do think that sometimes we make too much of that. My personal belief is that the message itself doesn't need our help to be cool or hip or relevant. It simply stands on its own merit and it pierces the coldest hearts and the most resistant hearts when the Holy Spirit brings conviction. And so the value in contextualization is, is really simply making people feel comfortable or at ease when they walk into a church or experience some kind of ministry event in that our presentation is not so outdated that it detracts or distracts from the audience uh, from hearing the message. And so there is value in that. And so at some level, contextualizing different aspects of our ministry, like keeping our facilities and, and our presentation updated, does matter as long as we don't make that a more significant part of our ministry than the message itself. Okay? And the reason that I say all of that is because by the very nature of the gospel and our place in it, the life of a Christian is inherently weird, isn't it? At least to the rest of the world, and we need to accept that at some level instead of trying to pretend that we're not weird. All right? If you could just forget for a few days everything that you've ever learned about Jesus and the gospel and the Bible and the church, and then go hang out for a while with people who are really following Christ, their lives wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to you. Because they wouldn't be putting themselves first with every decision that they make. They wouldn't constantly be striving for everything that they think they deserve. In fact, nothing in their lives would revolve around themselves or their rights, rather. They'd constantly be giving themselves away for the sake of others. They'd love those who were against them. They'd give to those who didn't earn it and don't deserve it. They'd have joy and peace in the middle of the, the greatest difficulties of life. They'd continually serve other people and love the most unlovable around us. They'd be kind and patient with everyone. They wouldn't covet what others have, wouldn't be jealous of what others have, but would be content with their own blessings. They'd be respectful and honor other people above themselves. And they would live to tell everyone that they meet about this person named Jesus Christ who did the unthinkable to save the world from itself. Now we know all of that. 
But what about those who don't? Can you see how weird the life of a Christian can seem to those who have yet to encounter the gospel in any real way? Yet, at the same time, the life of a Christian can be powerfully attractive to those outside the church because it addresses the longing of every human heart at the deepest levels. And this is why focusing on the gospel first and a relevant presentation of it somewhere after that is so important because if the draw to the church, to the gospel, is based primarily on aesthetics, a cool style of music, a really nice building, uh, the pastor's personality, fill in the blank, then the depth of our commitment will be skin deep. And the first moment we face real adversity in the church and in our lives, we'll look for something deeper elsewhere. And we see that happen all the time. However, if the church and, and our membership in it, in the body of Christ, if that is the place where we gather and consistently experience the activity of the Spirit of God, if, if the church for us is a wellspring of learning and understanding, uh, of growth and maturity, of power and of love being expressed by the Spirit of God through its members, through us, it is then that people outside the church will recognize, will recognize it for its true value, the expression of the person of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit through us. And when that is done corporately, when we're together, there's nothing else like it on earth. And that can be simultaneously very weird for those who don't understand it and very alluring at the same time because it addresses the need of every human being, the need for Jesus Christ to be the center of our lives. And so I just wanted to lay all of that out for you this morning as we continue our sermon series called The Acts of the Apostles with a message today that we've entitled Life by the Spirit because as we'll see in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, the life of the Christian can appear very strange. In fact, opposite in many ways to the life of the unbeliever, uh, as we saw in the video. Because as Christians, our lives are guided by the Holy Spirit who lives inside of, of us. Every Christian, if you're born again, if you're truly uh, a born again Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, His Spirit living in you. Okay, and we're led by that rather than by our own impulses or our own selfish desires. That's a difference between us and the world. It should be. And that should be reflected in the church every time we gather. Seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ expressed in our lives as we're being led by the Holy Spirit should always be our first priority. So I'll say it this way. Making the church culturally relevant as our first goal is the quickest way to making our ministry spiritually irrelevant. You with me? Making the church culturally relevant as our first goal is the quickest way to making our ministry spiritually irrelevant. The gospel must come first. Okay, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the two are mutually exclusive. They're not. It simply means that the gospel must come first. And as we discussed last week, historically... The periods where the church has experienced the most tension with the surrounding culture were also the periods where the church experienced the greatest times of growth. Nancy Piercy has done incredible uh, research on that. So the point is not to, uh, it's not for us to look for ways to offend the culture, right? Just so that we can be different. The gospel does that all by itself, according to scripture. The point is that we cannot focus 
on aesthetics, on temporal things, on shallow things, on being culturally relevant to the exclusion of or even in priority over the obedience to the Spirit of God. Okay, And as we'll see today, some of what happened with these early Christians was just plain weird. And, and a lot of what they did pushed against the culture of the time, yet they were wholly committed to following the voice of the Spirit of God above all others. And the result was literally world-changing. All right, and so as chapter 13, it's a, it's a fairly long text, so we're just going to look at the first 12 verses today, and then we'll finish the chapter next week. So this is part one of a message I've entitled, Life by the Spirit, and we'll, we'll see how that kind of life can and often does contradict uh, social norms, conventionally held religious beliefs, and even what is culturally acceptable at times, all right? And as we prepare to read then, Right here in the first three verses of chapter 13, we see that a life lived by the Spirit means that we're set apart. We're set apart by Him. In other words, we don't create our, our calling. God does that. Okay, God gives the calling. He designs and creates every individual for a specific purpose. And we're uniquely equipped, gifted, <clears throat> to fulfill that purpose which is our calling. Our part in that is to answer the call that he gives, not to try and create something different for ourselves, which often we do. And, and sometimes the trouble that we can run into is when we engage the majority of our time and energy and resources into something that we're not called to, something that we haven't been set apart for. Um, and that doesn't mean that you have to receive necessarily, by the way, some divine calling to music ministry before you can sing on the worship team or, or have a calling to a teaching ministry before you can lead a Bible study. Okay, Because sometimes people are gifted, they have talents in many areas, and they can and should use those gifts, the ability to, to sing or teach, for instance, in glorifying God, without that having to necessarily be their primary calling in life. But, but I do want to pause here and just mention we talk about gifts of the Spirit and gifts from God. Those are abilities that He gives us. Okay? And we do need to be gifted to do certain things. And just because uh, we decide one day there's a desire to do something, if we're not gifted to do that, it may not be the best thing. Okay? And I, I have 20 years of being a music director in churches. And so... It's common for people to come and say, hey, Pastor Rob, I, I want to be on the worship team. And so what we do is we, we'll sit down with them. And, and if they want to sing, for instance, I have them sing a song for me uh, while I play the guitar or something. It helps me assess their, their level of proficiency, their ability, what range they sing in, how strong is their voice. Are they a better lead singer or a backup singer? And all of these things, you kind of assess that. And then you know how to plan and how to plug them into to the team. But, but it's important that the person has some some gifting, right? I, if we were going to do a whole church renovation and we raise $100,000, I'm not going to ask the colorblind guy to be in charge of the renovation, right? To pick out the carpet and the paint colors and, and the color of the chairs. And we're not going to go to the guy that's colorblind and say, hey, would you head up the committee for our renovations? Because he has no ability in that area, right? That would be ridiculous. And, and it's kind of true with music too. And lots of things that we do in the church. As a matter of fact, 
there have been occasions when, and I remember one guy very well, he came to me and he said one day, Pastor Rob, I had a dream and God told me that I'm to be a worship leader. And so I want to I wanna come this Sunday and start singing with you and helping to lead worship. And I said, okay, well, hang on. Before we do that, let's get together this week, one evening, and, uh, and we'll kind of assess where you are musically and we'll, we'll go from there. And he said, okay. So I met with a guy and we sat down with a guitar. And I said, do you know this song? And he said, yeah. And I started to play it. I said, you just, when you're comfortable, any key, you just sing, I'll follow you. And he starts singing and, and it's, it's painfully bad. I mean, like, it's really, really bad. You know what I'm saying? And I said, okay, well, hang on a minute. Let's pick a different song and we'll change keys. And this went on several times and it was not getting any better, right? It was getting worse. And you have people sometimes who have some natural ability that God's given them, but they've never been taught. And that's fine. You can, I've, I've, one of the great joys of my ministry over 20 years has been teaching, particularly younger kids, to sing and to play instruments through the church. It's been a great, been a great thing. But there are those people every once in a while who are profoundly tone deaf. They don't have the gift. They ain't never going to have the gift. It's never coming. Do you know what I'm saying? And I finally said to this guy, I said, you know what? Let, can you just sing for me, Mary Had a Little Lamb? Because I just need to hear you sing something that you're comfortable with. And maybe the guitar is, you know, throwing him off. And he goes, yeah. Mary had a little lamb. A little lamb. A little lamb. Mary had a little lamb. Whose fleece was white as snow. It was, it was that bad. And I said, hey, how do you feel about working the computer on Sunday mornings? And he said, no, he's arguing with me. He said, I, I can, you know, and I said, listen, I don't, I play a note on the keyboard, sing this note. He couldn't do it. He's profoundly tone deaf. I said, look, I, I don't think this is the ministry for you. And he said, no, I can get voice lessons. I said, there aren't enough voice lessons in the world. It's not going to happen. I love you, but I have to be honest with you. And so in compassion, I'm trying to tell him. He said, I had a dream. I said, what did you have for dinner that night? Because that wasn't Jesus. You're not meant to sing on the worship team. It didn't end well. I'll just say it that way. He wasn't very happy with me. Gifts are abilities that God gives us, and we have to apply those as he gives us, yes. But it's important to some degree that you make sure there's some ability there, okay? Because some people are kind of gung-ho about everything. However, when we talk about being set apart today in this message, we're referring really to the primary ministry that you've been created for and called to by God. A ministry that is uniquely set apart for you. And as long as you allow the Spirit to lead you, He will. He will guide you throughout your life into that ministry. And He'll, he'll produce great spiritual fruit results. We talk about spiritual fruit. We're talking about the results from what we do. Okay, This should be where you spend the bulk of your time and resources. For some, it's being a parent, nurturing and teaching and raising children creating a home environment that's conducive to making disciples, which is exactly what you're doing when you raise children to become followers of Jesus Christ. Okay? Raising kids is a calling if there ever was one. 
For some, it's owning and operating a business. And you may be uniquely gifted and equipped with abilities and skills and the desire necessary to not only be successful in that, but to use that as a platform for ministry, whether that's financing other ministries or making disciples of Christ within the context of your work or both. For some, it's working in the medical field. Some, it's in the service industry. Some are called to be skilled tradesmen or teachers, right? The point is that God sets us apart for a particular job. And ultimately, if we're being led by the Spirit, that job will give us a platform to make disciples. In other words, if you're being led by the Spirit, your calling will be the vehicle through which your ministry is expressed. All right? Your calling will be the vehicle through which your ministry is expressed. And just to be clear, we're all called to fulfill the Great Commission. Okay, that is a universal calling to all disciples of Jesus Christ, which is expressed in Matthew 28, 19 by Jesus himself, who tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. You know that. What we're addressing here today is that specific work that God has set us apart for, that particular assignment that he wants us to carry out in our lives. Okay, so let's jump to chapter 13 and we'll see what it means to be set apart for a particular job or a particular mission. Acts 13.1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, so before we get to Barnabas and Saul exclusively, let's look at the other guys mentioned here. Because there's some significant observations to be made if we look closely. As Luke writes this list of names in verse 1, he separates them into two groups that correspond with the titles of prophet and teacher, okay? Uh, as it is written in the, in the original Greek language, if you read it there, he uses two grammatical particles in verse 1. A particle is a word that has to be associated with another word or phrase for it to convey any meaning. So it's always attached to another word or phrase. And so the particle both he uses before the names Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius in connection with the title prophet. And the particle and is used in connection with the names Manain and Saul in conjunction with the title of teacher. So Luke is identifying Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius as prophets and Manain and Saul as teachers. And right off the bat, he establishes that these men have been set apart as leaders in the church with specific functions or, or offices as prophets and teachers. But there's, there's more information here, okay? The word Niger associated with Simeon is Latin for black, which indicates in all of the ancient writing that he must have come from Africa, as did Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, Cyrene was a part of a Roman province in Libya on the north coast of Africa. Okay, now we already know what a miracle it was that Philip led an Ethiopian to Christ back in chapter 8. We know that it was a miracle for Peter to lead Cornelius, an uncircumcised Roman soldier, to Christ. We studied that back in chapter 10. No one, certainly in the Jewish world, would have ever imagined it possible that African Gentiles and uncircumcised Roman soldiers 
could ever be considered children of God. But these guys mentioned here in, in chapter 13, Simeon and Lucius were not only Christians from Africa, they were prophets and leaders in the church. I guarantee you that no one, especially Simeon and Lucius, could have ever imagined being leaders in the church of Jesus Christ before this time, especially given the way that they were raised and the place that they were raised in. And if that isn't amazing enough, Luke makes sure to point out something else even more astounding. He says that Manain was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And again, if you read this in the original Greek language, it explains that they were actually raised together. One translation calls them foster brothers. Now, Herod the Tetrarch was Herod Antipas, the same guy in power, the same Herod we read about in Jesus' time on earth. And yet here is Manain, Herod's foster brother, who is now a teacher and a leader in the church at Antioch. It's astounding. And there's a great parallel here between Manain and Herod with Moses and Pharaoh, right? Moses grew up in Pharaoh's court and even with Jacob and Esau, pairs of young men raised together in the same environment, the same parents, the same education, the same upbringing, the same values, the same culture, and yet one chooses God's way and the other rejects it. One is set apart and the other chooses their own destruction. So what do we learn? What does this mean? What do we learn from these African prophets in the church and, and Manain raised in Herod's court who now help lead the church of Jesus Christ as prophets and teachers? They're even sending out the great apostle Paul and Barnabas, right? What do these verses teach us? They teach us that beyond a shadow of a doubt that your past does not have to determine your future. Okay? Not by a long shot. These were Gentile heathens in no way raised in God in a God-fearing home. They weren't given the same opportunities to learn about God as the Jews were. They weren't taught about the prophecies of the Messiah and God's plan for the world. These were, these were hopeless, helpless lost and dying with nothing going for them, unbelievers who were set apart by God. Your past does not have to determine your future, regardless of where you were raised, what family you were raised in, uh, how you were treated, what you told yourself what others told you about yourself. No matter how many times you've failed or how much you've doubted yourself, that moment when you submit your life to Christ, He rewrites the rest of your story. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man... What man? says any man. In fact, that can be translated anyone. Be in Christ. He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Your past doesn't have to define your future. And some of you really need to accept this today. Because some of you beat yourselves up all the time and you shouldn't. God's grace and Christ's sacrifice are so much bigger and stronger than all of the sin we've ever committed. And all of the sin that we're ever going to commit. His love and mercy and grace conquered sin and death and hell. The work is done. And the moment you accept that truth 
and receive that work of grace in your life, he sets you apart for greater things. And we see that with these highly unlikely candidates in the church at Antioch, okay? This is all in the first verse of chapter 13. God has so much goodness set aside for us. If we could just shake off the weight of our past that we were never meant to carry, by the way, and walk in the light of His truth, okay? We're set apart and called by the Holy Spirit regardless, regardless of our past. Now, we'll take it a step further. Verse 2 clearly says that Barnabas and Saul are called by the Holy Spirit to a particular work, a specific job. And how does that become known? Through the leadership of the church. The Holy Spirit speaks to the church leaders and tells them to set Barnabas and Saul apart for a particular job. So what do they do with that leading of the Holy Spirit? They fast and pray. They fast and pray about it, and then they send Barnabas and Saul out from the church to carry on with the job, with the mission. You want to talk about weird. Think about that for a minute compared to what the world teaches. This is the equivalent of uh, me and Pastor Alex during a worship service hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit telling us to send out Tim and, and Jen Stoner to New York, you know, in the city, and then over to the Jersey Shore, and then down to Philadelphia to spread the gospel. And then after we fast and pray about it, they uproot everything and go. Now, the funny thing about that analogy is that I don't doubt Tim and Jen would actually do that uh, because they're wired that way. But you understand how rare that actually is in the church today, let alone in our culture, because we like our independence and we fight for it at all costs. Our society teaches us to make our own decisions, especially when it comes to major decisions. Independence in our culture is a high uh, priority on the list of desirable virtues. Yet the New Testament church was all about interdependence. There's a big difference. What do we have in the church today? It varies between the different denominations, different church traditions, but we do have a system for sending out missionaries who have been set apart for that work, and they're vetted and approved and sent out by the church, and that's the way it should be. But this should not only be the case for career missionaries. Okay? Each calling is different. It will be expressed in many different ways. But the point is that when we belong to Him, we're set apart and called by the Holy Spirit to carry out a specific work for Him. And that work should be approved and carried out in conjunction with the body of Christ. It provides a framework for mutual accountability and interdependence. It's not a control issue. It's a support issue. It's an accountability issue. It's not that the church or its leadership owns you or some exercises some kind of twisted control over your life. That, that's happened a lot in the church. It shouldn't have ever happened. But that's not at all what we're talking about. It's simply a matter of being a committed part of the body of Christ, of the church. And we don't see modeled in Scripture anywhere from the church's inception in Acts 2 through the rest of the New Testament, anyone carrying out any ministry outside of the context of the church. Why? Because we're all one body. And we're meant to function as a unit, as a body, not as individual, independent pieces without any accountability to or responsibility for one another. Okay, and so just to be clear, what I'm not saying is the next time you decide to switch jobs that you have to come get some kind of approval from the church, not at all. That's manipulation. It's unhealthy for you. It's unhealthy for the church. What I'm saying is that whatever ministry the Holy Spirit sets you apart for, that should be done in conjunction with, in cooperation with the church. 
And that doesn't mean necessarily this local expression of the church, but it does mean that you're supported and approved by the church, the body of Christ. Every example of ministers that I'm aware of who started out strong and ended up either in deep sin or seeing their ministries disintegrate were men and women who later admitted that over time they allowed themselves to come from out from underneath the covering of the church ministry because they felt they knew better or thought they could be more effective without having to function as a part of an organized body. And I've said it before uh, over the past few weeks, but it bears repeating because it is a reoccurring theme throughout the New Testament and certainly in the book of Acts. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. People talk about Moses and David and these guys that just went out and it was just them and God. Yeah, that was all before the church. They didn't have the church. From Acts 2 on, every apostle, every missionary, everybody we see are sent out from the church and supported by the church and held accountable by the church, loved by the church. They are a part of the body. Their ministry functions within the context of the church. Okay? We were specifically designed and created to work together. That's one of the reasons I chose to be a part of a, a church denomination instead of starting an independent church. Apart from any covering or authority, there are certainly no perfect churches and there are no perfect denominations. But the structure that we're a part of provides many layers of biblical accountability for me and for this church. And that's, that's why it's necessary and it's healthy. And people say, well, there were no denominations in the Bible. That's true. But the church in the New Testament was certainly organized, clearly structured with clear lines of authority and accountability, which we'll see even clearer when we get, by the way, into chapter 15. And that's exactly what we have in our denomination, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. And it's no different for us as individual members of the church. Authority and accountability and structure in the church, those are all positive, healthy, necessary aspects of the body of Christ. Okay, and by the way, we're getting very close to implementing our new ministry team structure. Some of you know about that. We'll be telling you about that soon. We've been developing it for several months now for this church. We've been writing curriculum. It's going to allow every believer that wants to serve in the ministry an avenue to do so through Upcountry Church. Okay, so just to summarize, when God sets you apart for ministry, even in your workplace, something you're doing outside the church, there's no reason for you to hide that or, or keep that secret or keep that in your own place because we have a biblical mandate to bring our ministry under the covering of the church. In other words, if you're ministering to people out there, wherever you are, laboring in the ministry of some kind, outside of you know our church services and these facilities, and that's wonderful, by the way, we should be doing that. That should be always, of course, approved by the Holy Spirit and covered in prayer and supported by your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Even if it's just by that ministry of yours uh, being submitted to prayer in the church on a regular basis. And you continually uh, to faithfully be a part of the process of discipleship that we're all involved in through the church ministries. That's what we're doing right now. This is a part of the discipleship process. We're studying the Word of God, okay? So the most biblical decision you could ever make for any ministry that you start or are a part of, those particularly outside of the local church, is to allow that to be in fellowship in the context of the church and being covered in prayer. Okay? It has nothing to do with nothing to do.
to do with the church trying to run it or you or take something over. We have plenty to do. <laughs> it's simply a matter of, of accountability and mutual support. And that's what we see all throughout the New Testament. Okay? The church's responsibility in that process is, is equally important that we have to commit to fast and pray for and support that ministry that you're involved in. All right? When you're out on the job site, in those meetings, or at home with your kids, whatever your ministry is outside the church, because we're supposed to be praying for and supporting one another as we carry out our calling, individually and collectively as the church. They would send out Paul and Barnabas. Sometimes they wouldn't see him for years. doesn't mean they ever stopped praying for or supporting them or sending support for them constantly. Okay, that's the biblical model for ministry. That's what being set apart by him looks like. Now, let's continue to read in our story in just a moment, and we'll see that living by the Spirit also means being sent out by Him. Okay? It means being set apart. It also means being sent out. And this is all progressive. It's a theme that builds on itself. We're called out from our past. We're set apart by the Holy Spirit, and then we're sent out by Him through the leadership of the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. When Barnabas and Saul are sent out, they don't act on their own. They also don't act blindly as the leadership of the church instructs them. And again, this is significant. The Holy Spirit speaks through the church leadership about uh, setting these guys apart. And then in verse 3, it says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay? Major decisions that affect people's lives, even those coming from the leadership of the church, are bathed in prayer and fasting. Uh, when Mary Beth and I wanted to move back to South Carolina from Alaska to start a new church, and we believed the Holy Spirit was directing us to do that, we contacted our leadership here in South Carolina, and we waited until we were vetted and approved by them before taking one more step in that direction. And then after they confirmed for us that they too felt the Lord was leading us in that direction, Mary Beth and I still spent two weeks fasting and praying about the calling to this specific work. We could have easily decided to just do that independently because it's what we wanted to do and we believed it was right. But we chose to take the steps modeled for us in the Bible because it has provided authority over us and accountability for us. And that is the biblical foundation for any local church or any ministry of any kind. Okay, and as we'll see in our text here, once that foundation is properly put into place, the Holy Spirit sends us out. So let's read these next two verses, starting in verse 4. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So after being called and set apart, after the blessing and approval from the leadership of the church, after they prayed and fasted, the Holy Spirit sends them out. Okay? Being set apart is never the end game. Gaining that status of set apart for Christ is not the end of the journey for the believer. It's the beginning. We're not set apart simply to be set apart. That's the problem, part of the problem the church has had in our culture. We reach some status, we think, and then we just sort of exist. I'm a Christian. We're set apart so that we can be sent out. There's a responsibility that comes with those four words. I am a Christian. So this may require a measure of reflection for you. But if you're a follower of Christ, you've been set apart. The question that you then need to answer is, what have I been sent out for? 
Have I been sent out? Where am I being sent to? And sometimes that can mean a physical move, an entire change of life it did for me and my family. But it's different for everyone. It can be as simple and yet as profound as the Holy Spirit prompting you to walk over to your neighbor's house that as far as you can tell, you have absolutely nothing in common with and begin to form a relationship there. You start building a bridge uh, until that critical moment when the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear, now is the time. It's time to tell her about Jesus. You see, sent out by the Holy Spirit can mean many things. It can mean leaving that vocation, that career path you're on for something very different because he wants to do something new in your life. It could be breaking off that unhealthy relationship that dishonors God. It could be reconciling that relationship that has been broken. It could be a myriad of things. The point is, once you're set apart by the Holy Spirit, you will be sent out by the Holy Spirit. And that should uh, always be carefully considered in prayer first. And it should come under the spiritual covering of the church. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. You see, you're gonna, I'm going to go minister to my neighbor. I feel like the Holy Spirit's telling me to go form a relationship, to build a bridge. The greatest thing you can do is come to the church and say, hey guys, I'm getting ready to go over and make a connection with my neighbor and I'm really nervous about it because we don't really have any kind of relationship and I don't think we have anything in common. There's nothing better than the body of Christ coming together and praying over that. That's what I'm talking about. Before you go do that, you have the support of the body of Christ. And now we're all in one spirit with you as you go over and make those connections. That's a powerful, that's a powerful thing. Okay? The key, by the way, to hearing from the Holy Spirit what we're being sent out to and when we should go, the key to that, a lot of people ask me, how do I know? How do I hear from the Holy Spirit about my calling? That's found in the process of seeking Him. What were Barnabas and Saul doing when they were set apart and called by the Holy Spirit? Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul uh, for the work to which I've called them. If you're a follower of Christ, you're already set apart. Your calling has already been determined and established, by the way. He's already written your story. The key for us isn't in waiting on Him to write the next chapter of our lives. The key for us is to seek Him until He reveals what He's already designed for us to do. So again, ask yourself, how much time do I spend seeking the Lord and His direction for my life daily? Then there's no magic formula here. But if there isn't any significant effort being made to seek Him and to worship Him and to listen for His voice on a consistent basis... I would suggest that being the place to start. Reorder whatever you have to, to make time in your day, spending it seeking the Lord. Because it is in those times of worship and reflection, those times of prayer and meditation, those times in His Word and listening for revelation, that you will hear His voice and know your calling. It comes in the process of seeking Him. And then after saturating that calling in prayer and fasting and submitting it to the covering, the prayer, the support of the church, you'll be sent out. And by the way, lest we think that all happens quickly, like in weeks or even months, uh, as we sometimes expect it to in our sort of fast food culture, the, this moment for Saul being sent out by the church in Antioch, which was the beginning of his great missionary journeys that we read about uh, throughout the rest of the, of the New Testament. This moment of being sent out with Barnabas from the church in Antioch was 11 years 
after Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. He was involved with other ministry before this, but his greatest calling, his missionary journeys, and his writings didn't begin until more than a decade after his conversion. So if you've been praying for months or even years, and I have people say I've been praying for years about my calling, don't, don't stop. Okay, God is preparing to send you out. If he hasn't already, the key is to continually remain in a posture of seeking him. Okay, and our final point for today that we see demonstrated in these next seven verses of our story is that living by the Spirit means being directed by Him. Just because we've been set apart by the Holy Spirit and approved and sent out through the church under the direction of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we've now attained to some level of accomplishment or wisdom that precludes us from seeking His guidance continually. Even after all of the approval and credentialing and schooling and seminary and experience and ministry and then finally being sent out to plant this church, I still ap approach this pulpit every week with fear and trembling. And every single week I sit in my study here and I pray every day and I plead with the Holy Spirit to speak to me to tell me what I'm supposed to say to you come Sunday, to reveal his word to me in ways that only he can, because God forgive me if I ever believe that I've arrived at some place in my life in ministry where I think I can get up here and teach you anything of value without the guidance and direction and revelation of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. In fact, that very scenario has been the beginning of the end for many in the ministry. The truth is that no matter how much experience we have, and no matter how much success we experience, we never outgrow our desperate need for the Holy Spirit to direct us. Okay? Let that sink in. We will never outgrow our desperate need for the Holy Spirit to direct us. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Anytime you see someone's path go from straight to crooked, you can be certain they've stopped acknowledging Him and begun leaning on their own understanding. And I love that fact about Saul that no matter how much success he experienced in ministry or how much authority he was given in the church, no matter how much he accomplished for the sake of Christ, when he was in the thick of it, he always relied on the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see here in these next few verses. And let's read it together, starting in verse 6. It says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil... You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, would you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. 
And then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished by the teaching of the Lord. Okay? Paphos was the seat of the Roman government on the island of Cyprus, and the proconsul was the highest ranking official in the Roman senatorial province. So per Sergius Apollos, this proconsul, he was the big cheese on Cyprus, which is where our friend Dave and Kathy live, our friends Dave and Kathy. Uh, make no mistake about it, Saul, who's now referred to as Paul, which is simply the Gentile version of his Hebrew name Saul, was there to testify to the proconsul, but this false prophet is trying to stop Paul from carrying out his calling because he sees the, the apostles as a potential threat to his profitable relationship with this guy that's in charge on the island. And so Paul and Barnabas and John try to share the gospel with the proconsul and the false prophet comes against them. And so what was it that finally made the difference in this whole situation? It wasn't Paul's intellect. In, in fact, verse 7 says the proconsul was already a man of intelligence. He wasn't going to be impressed by Paul's mind. He was a ruler, a leader. It wasn't Paul's ministry experience. The proconsul already had become accustomed to being with a seasoned prophet, although it was a false prophet. What made the difference? It was the moment that Paul relied on the Holy Spirit. As soon as he began to act under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the situation completely changed. The proconsul took notice. Right? Verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. In other words, he didn't believe until Paul acted under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And this is the only way that any of us will ever get anywhere in ministry. By relying on the direction of the Holy Spirit. We can build the biggest, coolest, most culturally relevant church experience of all time. And probably draw crowds of people. But if we're not being directed by the Holy Spirit, all that we're doing is showing people a good time. We must be spirit directed. If we're going to experience any success seeing people move from where they are, living in past sin, defeated by their history, convinced that they could never fit in or become anything meaningful people from all kinds of broken situations, if we're going to see them move from where they are to where God is calling them, we must be Holy Spirit directed in all that we do because that's the only kind of ministry that ever works in the long haul. Everything else is a flash in the pan. All right, This is what it means to make disciples of Christ. And that requires us being Spirit directed every step of the way. Unfortunately, I believe that in many cases we've learned to rely too much on ourselves. Uh, and pastors are probably more guilty than anyone in that. That is the way of our culture. It's self-reliance, which is why what we do when it's done right makes no sense to unbelievers. Praying earnestly and often and asking for guidance and then sitting quietly and waiting for an answer, which, by the way, can be very unnerving. And yet it's very necessary. I submit myself to other Christians daily and ask for guidance and have these ideas that the Holy Spirit has given me that I submit to others and I fast and pray over that before I act on that. None of this makes any sense to those who are not following Christ. It's just weird. And we have to be okay with that. Sometimes the life of a Christian can get a little weird for those outside of the faith, 
for those of us inside the faith, in fact. And if we focus on trying to fit in to the point that we suppress or even ignore the spirits leading in our lives because we're too concerned about what people might think, you know, that we're all just a little bit crazy. If we succumb to those fears, we'll end up living a very nice, a very safe, a very normal life that produces very little in the end for God. How concerned do you think that Paul and Barnabas were about what people thought about them? I don't think they were too concerned about that at all. Verse 51, uh, which we'll cover next week, says they shook the dust from their feet when they left this area and moved on because the people had rejected them. They didn't stay and try to fit in with what was culturally acceptable at the time. No, they, they chose instead to be directed by the Spirit, which meant the gospel came first. Okay? Let's make that always, and I know you do, let's make that our first priority above all of the other conventions of our culture. And man, we're going to be culturally with it. Trust me. We care about that. And we will always work on that. Okay? It's not that that doesn't factor in or we don't care anything about. That's why we're raising money to upgrade some things. Surely it's important. But I just want to caution you as the Holy Spirit has cautioned me this week writing this sermon because this church is growing. We're going to be going to two services soon. We're going to tell you more about that because we have to. We're looking at properties in downtown Traveler's Rest. We're very excited. We'll probably keep this building and do ministry here as well. But we may be moving to a bigger facility at some point. That's all very exciting. But I have so many friends, or and some that I don't know very well, but I know who have grown churches to the point where their priority becomes reversed. And, and being acceptable to the culture becomes so important that the gospel is no longer the number one priority. We have to make it and keep it our first priority above all of the other conventions of culture, above all of the expectations of society, above all that our unbelieving friends may think. And we have to instead let the Holy Spirit lead us. And I'm telling you, one thing is for sure, if we do that, it won't be, it won't be a boring ride. That's, that's for sure. I can promise you that. And we will see great results, spiritual results from our ministry, okay? Let's pray. Sam, would you come?